I'm going to read this comment right now because I just wrote something on how I think eventually there will be a script about Shams versus Woj. Uh, and I just, <laughs> I just love how this, <laughs> this is a great compliment, but it's so funny. Okay. To be a tedious scold, it's bad that the respective media organizations that employ these two invest significant resources in this war to be first to offer the public trivial garbage. It's even worse that other reporters are investing even more resources to write about this war to be the first to offer the public trivial garbage, garbage upon garbage. And it would be the worst if tens of millions are spent producing a movie slash show about this war to be the first to offer the public trivial garbage, a Voltron of garbage. Having said that, if anybody deserves to profit off this garbage, Ethan, it's you. So good luck. <laughs> And Godspeed. <laughs> Thank you, Pseudonym Joe. What a comment right there. This is what I'm after, Ethan, is people to be so into my Substack and so into my writing and so into my content that they're just going to cheer me on with the pom-poms <laughs> at every turn, even if they hate the subject that you are writing about and can't stand the idea of you being a part of this world or that piece of content. They just want to be in the Ethan Strauss game. And that's hashtag goals. Do it again, do it again. Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars. Winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss. We are joined by Tom Haverstrow, extremely sharp NBA analyst, proprietor of a new Substack called The Finder. How you doing? So I almost did it. I almost stuck the landing. I almost did it. How you doing, Tom? <laughs> I'm doing good. <laughs> I like oh. I do this all the time. We do uh we do basketball Illuminati and I'll do an intro that I've done a thousand times. This is Basketball Illuminati. I'm Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I am joined by uh, uh, uh is it five star? Is it four e. what is, what is the intro? E. And I'm like, I've done this a thousand times. The bane of my existence when I have an author on is that sub title subhead whatever you want to call it it's that extra part of the book that's the one that messes me up it's hard enough to remember the title of a book you wonder if you're gonna get a little word out of line but i had a bad one tom i had a bad one at the sloan conference where it was on artificial intelligence and that's not a topic that i'm especially well versed in so it was a crash right. course i was reading books in my hotel room on the ethics of it and what the black i remember box you texting was. me being like hey uh do you have any thoughts on ai because i'm i'm heading up yeah. a panel and i'm nervous yeah. about it yes i was very nervous which i think can be good it's appropriate fear as greg popovich would call it and uh had three panelists on including daryl morey uh who we will talk about later on the podcast uh but daryl the way sloan works is so funny to me now where Daryl just kind of ambles from panel to panel. He just likes it. He likes to be on these panels. He likes to talk, and he has a tremendous reserve of energy. So Daryl was on the panel, and there are two other people. 
And one of the AI expert guys, I, in my first minute, I threw to him and I, I gave him the wrong name and I still don't know it. It, it was either Pete or it was, uh, I don't know, Parka. Is that a name somebody might have? <laughs> it was something where I, Panda. and he had to correct Panda. me. It was Panda. I had to, he had to correct me up there and it was just, but that's I, good. You know, that's a good icebreaker. It, it cuts the tension out of the room. And I think that's good in some cases, right? Yeah, I think it's, you're right, Tim. Uh, it's a good way to deal about it. Uh, I just, you know, I wish somebody else could have broken the ice. I felt like a pitcher who had just given up a three-run homer in the first inning, and I had to recalibrate. Yeah, I um, I appreciate you having me on. A lot has changed since the last time I was on this show. Oh. Um, I've heard that. People, people don't know that. <laughs> Sorry. <I> did <laughs> <laughs> I, I have I have no hair. Uh, I'm balding uh, quicker than my older brothers, quicker than my dad ever did. Uh, and I thank my mother for that because her brothers and her father were bowling balls at like 23 years old. Mm. Um, well, wait a second. Wait a second. I know you're going to get into what has changed, but I've heard or I've read that that correlates with high testosterone. So, you know, maybe... This is just uh, one of the costs you pay for for manliness, Tom. And, you know, while I've got this uh, nice full head of hair, it's sending a signal out there to the world that I'm something of a weakling. So, you know, there is that. Think about it. I'm I'm buying that. I'm I'm in. Um, (laughs) If you've seen my chest, I am covered in hair on my chest. I have a lot of chest hair that in Miami, when I covered the heat, it would become like a, a running joke is just... I would always unbutton like the top two and just to kind of reveal that I've got a lot of chest hair. Maybe this was my compensation mm. for the fact that I was like 23 years old in a, in a man and a grown up beat, you know, like yeah. I was just feeling like I needed to prove myself a little bit more. And maybe this is so weird that we're talking about this, but that like my oh, chest let's hair, do it. My chest hair was somehow going to like give myself some street cred in the locker room of the Miami Heat. And LeBron James would look over at me and be like, hey, man, that kid over there, like I wasn't going to answer your question. But, man, those little uh, follicles that are popping out of that polo shirt. Yeah, man, I want to talk to you. Yeah, he, like me, is a very high testosterone kind of guy who's losing his hair faster than uh, we might want, is what LeBron thought when he looked over at you. Um, I kind of, you know, eventually we'll get to the topics of the topics of the day, but you know, it just occurs to me now we're looking back at that whole thing. I remember at the time, the heat index, how many people listening right now, Tom, do you think understand that the heat index was this big controversial thing in journalism that you were part of in your 20s. And it was just this whole hullabaloo about the existence of this thing. And you were the focus of all the scrutiny and hatred. In many ways, is your intro into a full-time position in NBA media. Yeah, I'd never been in an NBA locker room before. I guess I, 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 I take that back. I was in a NBA locker room once before. Hmm. Boston, Cleveland in the playoffs, I want to say. And I was contracted to do a story about the value of charging, taking charges. And I went into the locker room and I'm scared out of my mind. I'm like, I've never been in here. I, I, I didn't take a journalism class. I'm not, I wasn't like one of these college reporters. Um, I was an econ major who like kind of fell into doing a lot of research and analytics for ESPN. 
And I stumbled upon some data that suggested that tra- charges were really a lot more valuable in the box score missed it. Like guys who took mm. charges seemed to be improving their team's defense when they were on the floor a lot more than what we thought. And I remember going in there and seeing Jackie McMullen talking to Shaq, who at the time mm. I believe was playing for the Cavs. And it was one of these like optical illusions where I saw Jackie McMullen and I saw Shaq. And then Jackie walked over to me and she towered over me. And I was like, what just happened? Like yeah. I could not fathom how tall Shaq was because he's talking <laughs> to Jackie. And it seemed like Jackie was proportionally neck, neck tall next to Shaq. And then I didn't realize that Jackie McMullen's like 6'3". And it was crazy. And she probably was operating with such comfort in the locker room where, so this is a thing to bring people into it. We almost need to tell these stories, Tom, because it's a dying art. I don't even know if people will be allowed in the locker room 10 years from now, but it's, it's definitely a situation where most media people are kind of nervous. They've got a resting nervousness in there. They don't know how to be, They don't know what space to take up. They don't know where to be. They don't know when to jump in. These are thinky people. I'm going to put myself in this bucket. I'm not looking, looking down on anybody. But then you'll have the rare person who is just the total Chad who will just strut in there they know they can they, not only do they know the rules, but they can dictate the rules. They can invent their own rules. I would always see that with Marcus Thompson, where he would almost just invent his own rule book wherever he went. And you just look at them. I think this was written about by Brian Curtis. He called it the sidle. Yeah, and they yeah. they yeah. would know how to sidle. They would know how to go up to somebody who makes hundreds of millions of dollars and is very famous and maybe even has an aloof expression and somehow just get what they need and everybody else stands watching terrified like a kid at the school dance on the wall it's it's like a little game of like real estate monopoly where some people might have boardwalk and park place right in front of the the star player but then there's this other reporter in miami it was barry jackson who writes for the miami herald and he's kind of like the the guy in miami who just has all the scuttlebutt and the reason why he has all the scuttlebutt in miami in the sports media scene and in the sports scene is partly because of this title he Mm. would instead of being parked with the scrum, as we call it, where all the media and TV cameras and boom mics and all that are crowding around the player, the star player, he's off by the door. Mm. And by being at the door, when the player left the scrum, you could get that player one-on-one as they're leaving and he could say, hey, uh, you mind if I ask you a couple questions or hey, wanted to grab you for a minute, all off the record or on the record, whatever it was. And he would have this morsel that no one else had. So it was this great competitive advantage that he knew that everyone else is over here getting all the same quotes, getting all the same material. Why am I chasing that when I could get something unique and original and specific to what I need? And that was an art in the locker room. Yeah. And I tried to operate similarly and just, it's all going on TV. I, I, there's some sort of herd-like mentality where if you're with the scrum, at least you're not not doing your job. But I didn't like being in the scrum, and it was just easier. You would 
typically talk to a player who was uh, not a player that people were clamoring to get to, but at least you get something unique. But just the way the physical space is taken up, the 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 kind of it, the way cameramen fight against each other, it's a real strange situation. I remember when Steph when Steph Curry turned his ankle. And at that point, the ESPN news desk was just run by complete dicks who, uh, I mean, they were just doing their job. I'm, I'm sure they were under a lot of pressure, but this is my interpretation, people, where anything that happened, they would be jumping down my throat of why isn't there a news story? Why isn't there a news story? And this is just clearly a news story. Steph Curry gets injured. He leaves the game early. If he leaves the game early, he doesn't have to do media. I see him starting to scoot out of there out of the locker room while scrum is formed around Clay Thompson or whoever. And I just catch him. I go, Hey, quickly, I just need to know, you know, when did you turn that ankle? And I can barely get the words out of my mouth. And I just see this, like this stampede of humans coming at, coming at me, just this. And then, yeah. boom, then, then there are lights and everybody's like, okay, this is now a situation. that I'm now trapped in this crowd crush. Uh, <laughs> It feels like a very want. like Sahara desert, like, <laughs> like prey. Like so there's a lions over here eating this prey. And then you see someone else get like the elephant and you're like, oh, that's a lot more meat. I, I got to go over there too. And it becomes this like yeah. uh big game hunting where you're, you're, <laughs> you're just kind of like surveying the locker room where a player is opening up, you know, like LeBron, LeBron did this thing in Miami, which I caught a lot of shrapnel from this just by being part of the media side Yeah, is people hated LeBron so much at this time. Uh, it was the most hated team in sports history. It was the most hated team in the NBA for sure. And it was just round the clock content around ESPN. People couldn't get enough. My editor at the time, which uh, you and I are very close to this person, Royce Webb, when I would have a moment where I didn't know what to write, he would say two words, LeBron. <laughs> and it was just this insatiable desire to know everything that was happening with the Miami Heat. And so he would get a lot of difficult questions, a lot of tough questions that uh, would make things very uncomfortable, awkward. And LeBron did this thing where he had Dwayne Wade come out with him at the podium. Mm. So it was almost like the big brother was there to protect him when there was a tough question levied his way or lobbed his way. LeBron would almost look at Dwayne and Dwayne would come and pick up that question and bat it away. Almost like hmm. it was his muscle out there on the podium. And it was relentless. Like every new city that he went to, it was almost like the, the, the reporters that were in that city, whether it's Memphis or whether it's Sacramento, it was almost like they got their opportunity to take a jab at LeBron when he was on his traveling road show. And I mean, I had death threats. Of course I had people who, uh, I almost got in a fight in press row with an old, like hall of fame reporter that in my, in retrospect was a really embarrassing moment. And I'd like to take back, but at the time there, mm. it was so, everything was so charged that yeah. I was the young kid who came from, uh, like the numbers world. And this was the dawn of the sabermetric analytics revolution in the NBA. And I was kind of almost like this new threat to old journalists, old, older journalists, the old guard. And Mark Heisler, 
who's like Kurt Gowdy award winning, I'm sure. Uh, one of the best writers in the business, best reporters in the business at the LA Times. He kept writing these columns about how LeBron didn't have a post game. Mm. And I was the nerd who had synergy data <laughs> that mm. was like saying that LeBron James was one of the most efficient players in the post. And I remember in the 2011 NBA finals in Dallas at press row, we got in an argument because I think we were sitting next to each other and it just, all this like tension had built up. He was calling me out in the press. I was calling him out and like subtly in my columns. And it just got it, like, we started yelling at each other in press row and I'm pointing to my computer. I'm <laughs> such a nerd. I'm 20, I'm 25. I think at this point, I'm like, see his points per possession is 1.3 points per, per play on. And it ranks 93rd percentile. And he's like, I don't care. He doesn't do it. He doesn't have any confidence in it. And he's terrified of playing with his back to the basket, which he was right about. And mm. we were both talking past to each other, past each other, because I was arguing one thing, which is LeBron's really good at the post up. He was yeah. arguing he is terrified of going to the post, and that's why JJ Barea could play defense against LeBron, and LeBron wouldn't back him down. And so mm. I don't think it's a coincidence that I was 25 and Mark Heiser probably was like 75 at the time, and the argument really wasn't about LeBron's post game. It was really about just the turf in journalism at the time or reporting. Yeah. He saw me as uh, an archetype, a threat. And I very much in my like firejoemorgan.com way was trying to call these guys out as buffoons, not purposely, but like subliminally as the new kid on the block. I had this chip on my shoulder that I knew something they didn't know. And now 10 years later, as I'm looking back on it, uh, probably insecurity. Mm. God, that's a great story. I, I had a similar experience where I thought I was in the right, but when I look back on it, I don't think I was in the right. Where uh, I started doing these stories for Warriors World, I could just do whatever I wanted because it was a blog and the Warriors sucked. So they didn't care. They would, hey, you got a blog? You know, come on down. This was not the Warriors as people now know them. This was a very different situation but you still have the ap reporter there and she's got to do the gamer as fast as she can but i didn't even know about that i wasn't even thinking about that so in the locker room i just started asking my weird questions just the, the scrum <laughs> starts and i'm just you know i'm, I'm like oh, what, what do you think about this uh, what do you think about that i don't even know what i was asking but um she afterwards chewed me out and was angry that I had asked these questions. And I think she she was not the nicest about it. She was a veteran reporter. Uh, but in th that moment was not the nicest. But I was not nice in response at all. I was total asshole. Um, you broke the code. He, broke the code, man. Well, there's a there's an unwritten code, just like in baseball. The unwritten rules is yeah. you let the local beat writers get in their questions first so they yes. can file their game stories. Right. Yes. Yes. I did not even know that much. I know it <laughs> seems obvious now, but I didn't even know that much. I'm just looking at it like, hey, we all got a press credential. I can't ask. I can't ask a question. I'm like, no, I, I think I said some. No, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, just go away. Um, but. Yeah, as I as I went along, I learned that no, she was actually correct, and there is a protocol. There was a there is a way to do things, and I just didn't even know. I didn't even know what I didn't know. 
um, as is common back then. I didn't have your perspective. I mean, it must have been so difficult to see the value in what the older journalists could provide because Fire Joe Morgan and the stat heads in baseball had revealed them to be frauds in a way and to not understand so much. I mean, how could you not overcorrect and assume too much in the aftermath of such findings? Yeah, and I remember Brian Windhurst pulling me aside with Mark Heisler and just like, hey guys, you're you're both really great people. Let's let's (laughs) just bury the hatchet. And I remember being like, fine, and shake our hands and move on. But um, there was a there was a moment where um, those kind of dust ups happened a lot on the beat because it was so um, it was so important for your careers to get this right. Mm. Keep in mind, like people move from all around the country to cover that team, including myself, including Brian Winhurst, including Kevin Arnovitz, including uh, Bill Ryder, uh, Chris Thomason. Um, uh, I'm forgetting like several other writers let's, that let, let's set pick- the stage. Let's set, let, let's set the stage for people who don't know, because we might have some Gen Z people listening, some non NBA fans, LeBron James in 2010 shocks the world, makes a big extravaganza out of his free agency announces that he's forming a super team in Miami. I'm taking my talents to South beach. He said, and yeah. triggers a level of anger and disgust that I don't, I don't even know if it has precedent in sports as far as non-criminal activity, as far as somebody using their free agency as they are allowed to do so. But the way he did it and the sympathy people felt for Cleveland, and it was a different era. Twitter was not what it was where people have gone the other way and become very pro player. And so ESPN, because there was so much heat, (laughs) if you will, (laughs) on that situation in Miami, said, we're just going to set up an operation to cover the hell at the Miami heat. They are the story of the season. It's going to be called the heat index. And it was controversial for whatever reason that ESPN invested these resources. And that's what you were in the center of at that particular time. It laid bare the fact that ESPN is not a public trust. ESPN Mm. was someone who was like, wait, if all the traffic and all the attention is on this team, then let's dedicate four reporters to go cover it. You know, they did the same thing with ESPN, the regions like ESPN LA, New York, Boston. There's a reason why they chose those cities. It's because there was an outsized attention to the sports scene in that city. And we, I mean, that's for another conversation, the fact that those regional uh, sites didn't pan out Mm. as well as they had hoped. But the idea was, we don't need ESPNMiami.com. We need Heat Index. We need... Four people, yeah. and maybe at the time that was probably a low number, but yeah, the, there was almost this equity that every team deserved to have one reporter or one voice or one name on that team. And so, a lot of the small market folks who looked at the Miami Heat getting four reporters, four ESPN reporters, to them, it felt like that this was unfair, that this was almost stacking the deck. LeBron goes mm-hmm. to Miami, uh, uh, a tropical city with beautiful people, um, and they also get more coverage. This seemed mm-hmm. unfair. And so I caught a lot of that um, by virtue of just being one of those four. And Ethan, like when the 
Athletic hired several reporters to go cover the Warriors, it was, I think, still people were kind of annoyed by that. There's some sort yeah. of like there was um, it was unfair or it was just this this betrayal almost. But man, coupling well, I, it with LeBron, it was just like it was so yeah. crazy. I mean, it was, I think, a little bit more gradual with the way the athletic did it. And those reporters were on the scene at the time with the heat index. As you said, they brought people to that particular scene. And you're a very likable person, Tom, uh, if I do say so myself. But. <laughs> People must have hated you. This, you know, this mid twenties stats. Somebody's going to tell you that actually LeBron is going to regress to the mean positively when he's had a bad game or two. Um, You must have been the object of a lot of strange scorn that was really directed at LeBron, but to what you're saying was also connected to this other thing of just the new, the new way of doing things and the dismantling of old traditions. Well, I remember being so, um, I, I remember being called like a LeBron apologist and now people think that I'm a hater and like a lot of my Twitter feed, uh, the inbox is like, people are like, oh, of course you write a story about Dwayne Wade and his hall of fame speech. Cause you're a LeBron hater and you just want to mm. prop up the, the Dwayne Wade guy. And it's so crazy to think that people consider me as a LeBron hater When in Miami, I was the opposite. I was on the other end of the spectrum because I was writing stories about how LeBron was more clutch than Kobe. Like that is almost like heresy, right? Like in sports media at the time, writing that LeBron James was actually clutch was uh, was sacrilegious. Mm. And I had the numbers to back it up. And so when I wrote those stories, people wouldn't even read it. They just wanted to light you up because it broke the narrative of LeBron where it broke the the story of LeBron at that point was that he was a choker, that he he bailed on the Cavs against the, the uh, against the Boston Celtics. He never won the big one, never could win the big one. And this is first take Skip Bayless, Stephen A. Smith, uh, the peak of those years where it was incontrovertible. In, what's the word I'm looking for? It was incontrovertible. The idea that LeBron James was actually clutch and that he was going to win a title was so beyond the realm of possibility on the air. The mainstream Mm. media was already writing the epitaph on his career. And it was, it was lunacy. Like the numbers, like he was so good. And he was like, Mm. when they were nine and eight and there were calls for Eric Spolster to be fired. um, And I'm writing these columns being like, this is all just, Small sample size theater. They're gonna they're gonna be really good, and their defense is awesome. The opposing offense, they're they're shooting lights out. And like you said, a lot of it was this is gonna regress to the mean, and the Miami Heat are gonna go on a run. And then they ended up winning like twenty two out of the next twenty four games after that. Yeah, I mean, did you have any doubts at that time? I mean, how much did you trust the numbers? Um, I had I had some doubt, but I remember watching Dallas win the finals that year and just thinking my career was over hmm. what why would you think your career was over that was more attention because i was wrong oh i was an God. idiot i was the guy oh. who said no they're they're gonna wax the dallas mavericks they are the team that everyone thought they were gonna be their defense eric spolstra the the mastermind they're gonna prove you all wrong and then all of those 
doubters on the Miami Heat were proved correct by Dirk Nowitzki and I JJ love, I love that we can be honest about it because I had a similar experience in 2016 where I'm the guy where there's some I'm I'm a lightning rod for some people's resentments about the Warriors because they're the greatest thing since sliced bread and they're winning 73 games and my job in a way is they're winning so much is to almost recontextualize it and you think it's this great but it's also that great and it's just annoying to a lot of people out there who are not so enamored even though many people obviously were and then I end up feeling the brunt of that and in theory I shouldn't feel any kind of way whether the Warriors win or whether they lose. But when they shockingly lost the 3-1 lead, I did feel, and there's such a taboo against admitting it, Tom. Isn't it funny? It's such a taboo. But I felt terrible because I was getting made fun of. People were saying mean things about me, Tom. Mean, mean things because this sports thing happened that I have no control over whatsoever. And I think I felt similar to how you felt where it was profoundly embarrassing. Maybe necessarily, maybe we should have been knocked down a peg or two yes. for our own yes. edification and moral progress, but it did not feel good. Now, did it? No, it didn't. And it was, I think, less so about the the pejorative jabs on Twitter that you're a dweeb, you're, you're a, a nerd that has never played basketball. With The irony is Mario Chalmers and I used to play on the same basketball camp team. Uh, mm. And like, I remember one time I walked up to him and he was just like, who are you? And I'm like, dude, we used to, we used to play mm-hmm. at UNC together. Uh, he's like, nah, I, I don't, I don't remember mm. you. And I'm like, of course you don't like, look at me. Uh, I'm just yeah. like every other, you know, schlub that you play with uh, back in the day. So like the, the the idea that like I was this outsider nerd who knew nothing about the game and didn't play the game, didn't play at a level beyond high school, and therefore um, I was a fraud. All of those things crept back into my head and made me think I actually don't know what I'm talking about. The numbers are are lying to you. And that's what LeBron, like LeBron, I remember part of the reason why Mark Heisler and I went at it on press row was I believed that LeBron was going to unleash this unstoppable post game. And he was right in the fact that LeBron had to lose to feel that scorn and that embarrassment to break everything down to the studs and then build himself back up again. And that's what he did. LeBron famously went into the hole for like two weeks didn't talk to anybody and just marinated in the embarrassment. Mm. And famously, no one talked to him. No one could hear from him. And he was just like, out of that hole, he realized like, I got to change. So Eric Spolstra, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, they reinvent the team and say, yeah, LeBron, you're going to be a four. You're going to play the four. You're going to play out on the block and no one's going to be able to stop you. You're going to build up all this confidence. He goes and works out with Hakeem and LeBron as the big man who could park himself on the, on the block and then spray the ball everywhere and hit shooters that we hadn't seen before consistently. Um, And small ball LeBron guarding one through five. We hadn't seen that consistently, but after that Dallas Mavericks series, he looked himself in the mirror and was like, I got to change all those people, all those doubters, they were right about something. 
is that I believed I was going to succeed playing this way. And maybe they're right. I have to listen on this one thing, which is be more dynamic. I'm, I'm Carl Malone. Like I can be Carl Malone and also pass it like John Stockton. And that's where I unlock the, the real ceiling of my game. And that's where the Miami Heat did. And that's what they, why they embarrassed the Oklahoma City Thunder that next year, winning in five games um, in the finals, was they realized that like they needed to play small. And LeBron James is the size of Carl Malone. Play him at the four, Chris Bosh at the five, and no one's going to be able to stop them. And that's why they ran rough shot out, around the league like for the next two years. But how confident were you in that happening when he goes into Boston in game six? It was uh, it was a big turning point for everybody involved in covering that team, because I remember Bill Ryder, who is one of my friends to this day, Bill Ryder. He's he's now a host on CBS Sports Radio and writes a column for CBS Sports. Uh, after that first season, I remember then first season. He watched the regular season game of the Boston Celtics beating the Miami Heat, and he wrote it emphatically in a column. Miami Heat will never beat the Celtics. Mm. Will never, ever climb the mountain of KG and Ray Allen and Paul Pierce and Doc Rivers. They are never going to climb that mountain. They are not going to ever overcome. And I remember like being the the nerd, being like. Uh, wouldn't be so sure about that. Watching the playoffs, LeBron's going to destroy them. And it eventually happened. But I remember at that 2011, it was just, I don't know. I questioned everything after that. And of course, game six was, you know, against Boston. In Boston was was one of those games that you'll never forget. Yeah, I uh, I remember where I was in, in my apartment. There's not really amazing <laughs> details connected to that. Um. Connected to the Miami Heat thing, I really enjoyed your Dwayne Wade retrospective, your 10 things. I didn't think, to be totally candid with you, when I was looking over the when I was looking over what you've put on the site, I didn't anticipate that this would be the thing that I would really enjoy because it's so basketball-y, Tom. And I'm such a refined intellectual now. I don't need facts about Dwayne Wade's career, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm highfalutin these days. And yet it was such a reminder to me that you're, you're so good at that. You're so good at finding things other people, other people can't find or don't find. And also the theme of it to me was this, this reminder, two things. It was, this guy was a strange superstar, a very quirky, idiosyncratic, doesn't fit into the modern era but you can't tell the story of the modern era without him. And then combined with, it feels like he slipped through the cracks a bit. He just got inducted to the hall of fame. He does all this attention getting stuff. He's always on television. He's married to an actress. And yet doesn't it feel a little bit like he's either underrated or just doesn't, he's not contextualized as anything in particular. Well, this is what I think Jason Jackson talked to Amin Alhassan about was that all the sacrifices he made in his career was, you know, it's almost people laugh at the idea that he sacrificed to have LeBron on his team, but he did. And part of that is what you're talking about is that Dwayne Wade, by virtue of like subjugating his ego to LeBron and, and inviting him to the team, in some ways that would make him have a, lo- a lower profile or a lower legacy as the as a great player because 
in, in the same way that Kevin Durant coming to Golden State was a threat to Stephen Curry's legacy, Dwayne Wade probably doesn't have the same alpha legacy that he deserves because of that fact, because he won it with LeBron. Um, and people think, oh, he, you know, Paul Pierce said, if I had Shaq in 2006, mm. I would win an NBA title too. And then there's, there's almost this idea that like Dwayne Wade couldn't win if he was the only, if he was the number one. Yeah. which I think is false. The guy averaged, as I wrote in the piece, he averaged like 30 points and 1.3 blocks as a shooting guard. As yeah. a shooting guard. This guy was the best shot blocking guard in NBA history. And he also had no three-point game. And he also wasn't highly recruited out of high school. Um, no, and he, I didn't know you, you, you mentioned he wasn't in the top 100, which blew me away. Yeah, this guy had an incredible rise, um, and he might have been number one if it weren't for LeBron, Carmelo, Darko, and Chris Bosh uh, just being that big of a prospect coming in. So um, when he was announced, you know, when he was inducted in the Hall of Fame, I just decided, like, I'm going to pull my greatest hits or my favorite things about Dwayne Wade and put it together in a post. And it's different than my other writing, like... um, the conflicts of interest piece that I wrote uh, as like the opening um, article for my Substack, that's been my lane for the last couple of years is the referees, injuries, conflicts of interest, the gambling, all of that. Um, but I really, I really enjoyed writing that Dwayne Wade piece. And I, our friend, Kevin Arnovitz, he always says, if you're, if you're not enjoying writing about it, people aren't going to enjoy mm-hmm. reading it. So I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. Cause I, I had a lot of fun collecting. It. I can't of- believe he didn't, he didn't eat, fish until he was 34 years old <laughs> well i can understand that i've got a fish allergy but oh i uh, forgot who i'm talking to it's even but, but, you know but uh, at the same time i mean it is strange if you've got because it does look beautiful the fish does i feel like i if i had no reason to have an aversion i would probably try to sample it um yeah i think where, where is i gonna go with that i got distracted by thinking about how disgusted i am with fish uh, as a food and my recognition my recognition my realization that uh, other people must like it and i my take on it is not objective um that's well, interesting I, I, the idea of if you're in tra- like that's my rule if i'm interested in it, i can get other people interested in it yes. but if i like writing about it, a lot of people who are great writers hate writing so i don't know where i come down on that one tom um yeah i guess um if it interests you, uh, it's kind of the same vein. It, it, you know, Dan Levitard always likes to say he hates writing, but he loves having written. And yes. there's a lot to that is that if you're writing some, um, some really important radioactive material, you're mm. losing sleep over every single word that you put on that paper, right on that mm. page. And that can feel a little like torture, but I think what's driving it is that it interests you and that you feel it's a big deal, it's important, and that no one else is writing it or no one else is, has the information and no one else has the courage to write it. And that's what I get a lot from your writing at um, House of Strauss. I don't think that I feel as confident in opening up a Substack without you doing it first because I think we operate in similar lanes where uh, I don't know whether it's like truth to power journalism or 
saying the thing that everyone knows, open secrets in the NBA and writing it. Yeah. That's that's my favorite stuff. And um, the Tinderization of the NBA where <laughs> <laughs> like... Uh, well, for, the, for those who don't know that players get drunk less often, live a healthier lifestyle because they can order up their sex on an app. That is what Tom is referring to. Yeah. Tinderization of the NBA was this ESPN magazine story that I worked on where I saw that home court advantage was disappearing in the NBA. Mm. And I went to go investigate and find the answer to that. I was like, why is home court going away? Teams usually won by, you know, three, four, five, six points on average um, in the NBA at home. And then it just was like zero. And halfway through the season, I was starting to ask around and some said it was referees, which there was some truth to it, um, that referees weren't as homer as they used to be because they used to think they were part of the entertainment, that in the early mm. ages of the NBA, home court advantage was sky high. And if you read books about former NBA referees, um, they'll tell it like a lot of them felt like they had to play it up to the home crowd as part of getting people to go to games and yeah. feel like they're part the of the action. The league is going to collapse if we don't start making uh, <laughs> making some of these calls. Why would you show up if you couldn't just yell at the <laughs> referees and they would finally capitulate and say, yes, that was a foul. Um, but but now that analytics came aboard and referees are being monitored more, maybe they were a lot more fair or less biased in the, the home court advantage. But there was this other thing that was going on, which was the tenderization of the NBA where players weren't going out as much. And what happens when you don't go out as much is you get more sleep and you also mm. get better sleep. Because if we know anything after like w tracking my heart rate at after a night of drinking, if you're if you're going out to the bars till three in the morning, not only are you getting less sleep, you're getting awful sleep and sleep is the natural PED. Athletes who sleep a lot and prioritize their sleep. And Andre Iguodala is like one of the pioneers in this whole thing. And um, is the idea that like players were playing better on the road because they were able to get women to their room a lot more efficiently through apps mm. like Tinder and other sites where they could get off the plane, text them and not have to go like Charles Barkley or uh, Michael Jordan or that era where they'd have to go to the bar. Right. Yeah. That whole thing was one of the biggest factors, I think, well, in home court advantage disappearing was players were just not going out as much. Well, to me, my main takeaway from that piece of yours was that wheels up is code. I felt so naive and stupid that I would see these players, they would tweet out or they would IG wheels up or wheels down in whatever city. And I thought it was like the early days of Twitter where Ashton Kutcher is just narrating that he's gotten a coffee. I didn't understand that this was a signal uh, that maybe it's time to send some messages because I just arrived. Uh, yep. I was glad that that you could square that particular circle for me. I think with the Substack of yours, you've got a lot of territory available to you. You can get into that territory of referees. And I want to maybe ask a, a few questions about why... Because I've talked about a lot of the gambling, but I've worried less about the threat to the sport itself. And I've thought more about the societal implications. But you can go there, but you can also go to these places that I think constitute a bit of a market inefficiency. I think 
there's just when you're making sense of things, Tom, when I look at the Harden situation where he calls Daryl Morey a liar in China, the general manager slash president of his team, that I go to ESPN for answers and perspective on it. But the entire sports media digital space has been completely stripped bare. And especially there at ESPN, our guy, Brian Windhorst, who is excellent, has a write up on it, but I can't really find anything else. And as great as Brian is, that is one perspective. And I read yours and I feel like, okay, I'm getting a great breakdown. You split it into four different scenarios of where this could all go. And I'm going, okay, Tom is making sense of this for me. And I don't, There aren't a lot of sense makers right now. And this is just an idle observation. Um, I used to tell people when they come to me about starting a sports sub stack, and I think I gave them more of the hold your horses because I assumed, I think if you've got a thing that's working, it's natural to assume that it has to be done the way you do it. So I would go, oh, okay, well, I don't know if you, you don't really do what I do. And you know what I did kind of worked. So you got to have weird politics. You've got to be, you know, whatever. I, I don't even know. You've got to have some sort of cultural observation. But the more I look at it, I think there are just so many different ways to do it right now, in part because the major institutions have completely obliterated a lot of what the fans have a hunger for. So I'm just throwing well, those thoughts at you. I don't know if you noticed this, but Brian wrote a great column about this story, the James Harden story and what it all means. Did you notice who wrote the news story about this? Like the gamer. And you talked about the gamer. When Steph Curry got injured at ESPN, we would have to file a gamer. When Dwayne Wade's knee was bothering him and he left a game, they would send me or Michael Wallace or Brian Winhurst to go get a quote and file a gamer. That is a news story. And you get your name on... I felt like such a grown up when you have the city at the start of it. You get the little, sorry, really like the capital letters, you know, yeah, China. And, <laughs> but yeah, yes, you were saying, sorry. Coral Gables. Um, it was, uh, that's what, that's what we call a gamer where someone has to have their name on a story um, and you get your name on the byline. And that's important because when the big story hits, your name is attached to it and you're the first name that they see and your face is right there. James Harden calls Daryl Morey a liar. And if you look at the news story, the gamer breaking that news story down, there's no byline. Mm. It's just ESPN news services. And... That's AI? really interesting to me. It's the idea of um, most, almost every NBA story has a byline on it, an author who wrote that writes that story. But for whatever reason, the James Harden, Daryl Morey one was either too radioactive or there were sources that would be upset if one person wrote it, that nobody attached their name to that, st- that story. And it's one of the biggest stories of the NBA offseason. And no one, ESPN didn't have anybody write it. Fascinating. Man, like, like I think, do you, I think it's you, also, you know, you say there, there's a void in the NBA market. Um, I just think agents have become so powerful behind the scenes in journalism and, and maybe they were always that way. But when you see old tweets 
breaking the same news of the draft or free agency or trades saying league sources tell ESPN. And now we just go out and say the agent. Now I mean, it's not just saying the agent. And we do this on basketball Illuminati where there's a, there's almost a loyalty program of like gold, silver, diamond, and <laughs> platinum, where if you're the platinum source, if you're the platinum agent relationship with a journalist or a reporter, newsbreaker, you get not just your name in the breaking news yeah. tweet, you get the at, the Twitter at. And not only do you get the Twitter at, you get the whole CEO title or the <laughs> the presidents of the agency so-and-so, and you can go to their Twitter handle here and go to their... It's an ad. It's an it's, ad. Yes, yes. And... Part of me says, okay, it's good. Okay, the, the subtext is now text. It's all out in the open. We can see how this all operates. But then why even have a media at that point? I mean, that's the thing. Like, why even, why even do it that way? And I, I'm sure we can come up with reasons for it. But, I mean, it is so bizarre because when it's all revealed like that, you know, okay, I now know that you can never talk honestly about this person or their clients. Like I, I can, I can come to that conclusion. I don't think that's an unreasonable conclusion to come to when we see how transactional it all is right there. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by your observation about nobody taking the bullet on something so radioactive. Maybe I can sell the SPN on, I could be a ghostwriter, maybe invent <laughs> invent a fake identity and I could do this on the side. We can negotiate a rate. I know that, you know, me, ESPN, we can't be together formally, but you give it some name. I don't know. Bartholomew Higglebottom or whatever. And he's just going to be throwing bombs and people are going to be yelling. Agents are going to be yelling at, at, at Woj about like, what the hell this Higglebottom is like, I can't control him. I can't control him. He's the son of somebody very powerful. It's not my fault that he's, he's throwing these bombs out here. And maybe that's the way ESPN can actually get some, uh, some content that they otherwise could not get to. Um, because it's very funny that they're trying to write a news story and not have any fingerprints on it. Yeah, and there's just a lot of examples of that in the NBA space and, and probably beyond. I don't think this is a particularly unique situation to the NBA is that like newsbreakers have a lot of power and um, and whether that's Adam Schefter or whoever it is in baseball or whoever it is in, in soccer, um, they, they wield a lot of power in controlling the messaging, controlling the narrative, get, being the first out is very important in, in controlling and anchoring the conversation. You know, when, uh, when like James Harden goes out and says, I'm tired of being comfortable. Maybe it's time to get uncomfortable. He tweets that mm. out or posted on Instagram a month ago. When everyone talks about this James Harden situation, they are now using that word uncomfortable. Yeah. Everywhere. I've noticed that. Yeah. That now it's it's becoming this new way to frame the story is that, oh, James Harden is going to make things very uncomfortable for Daryl Morey and the 76ers and Joel Embiid. And I'm like, where did this word come from? Well, it turns out that patient zero on this is James Harden's Instagram account and then subliminally or consciously 
it has become now part of our vernacular talking about this story. And maybe we give a, a lot of credit to James Harden here. He is now making the narrative that he is going to go out there and make things very, quote unquote, uncomfortable for the Sixers. <laughs> I just, but, I mean, I, mean I, I, I found that to be fascinating. Is that like, he, like I did, he I literally, did a search. Yeah. No, continue, continue. I, I, I literally I like did a, swer- a search on Adrian Wojnarowski's Twitter and I was like, I wonder if he's ever said the word uncomfortable on Twitter. And he hadn't until this story. And then like as he's framing the James Harden story about Daryl Morey, he's using the word uncomfortable, not in a quote, but in just in the the description of the of the story. And it's just like finding these little interesting nuggets about how the stories get told or the reports. It's just uh, I'm fascinated by it all because sports media, as you know, is its own it's its own beast. And the way that things get covered and that Jeff Van Gundy is no longer on the broadcast and Mark Jackson's no longer on the broadcast. I was listening to you talk to Bomani Jones. And how you were like, I think Brian Winhurst is the best on TV at ESPN. And I'm like, cosign. I looked yeah. at their announcement, ESPN's announcement on who is going to be their lead studio and broadcast and the whole team about who's going to be broadcasting NBA on ESPN. Brian Winhurst's name is nowhere to be found. Again. I don't understand it. I don't understand <laughs> how this dude isn't on every program on TV. He's so good at not just the theatrics or performance of TV. He's so good at communicating and revealing yeah. the story, why you need to know about this. I mean, the, the yeah. fact that the meme yeah. of Donovan Mitchell I was, and that, that trade, <laughs> no one else can do that. But Brian, Brian is the uh, reason why that's a meme. It's because he was so good at it. And he does that all the time. He invites you into the room and you sit around and you, you listen to Brian explain it. And you're just like, oh yeah, this totally makes sense. He is so good at that. He got out of the news breaking business and he realized like I'm going to just work at telling the story and giving the people the information without feeling like I'm conflicted. I'm just going to frame it the right way and be engaged in the content. And he's so good at it. And I just can't believe that he's not everywhere on ESPN. Now, now Tom, Brian, not on the announcing team. Now, why would they do that? To quote Brian, <laughs> why, why would they do that? I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I actually literally don't know. I wish I could. Like, oh, I, I don't want to create trouble for him either. I feel like the more I praise him, the more I don't know, I might aggravate certain people within that particular institution. I, don't know, I just try, he, try, I, try, I love oh. Brian. He's and and I just saw that the other day that they announced like their their studio teams. And I'm just like, where's Brian? Uh, where's Brian? Where's Brian? And like, it's just not it's not there. And I just don't I don't understand it because I think he's just so good at this. It's I, I think it's absurd. I think it's a rare thing to be good at it. It's a rare thing to bring people into uh, these stories in a perpetually chaotic NBA where you're looking at the Harden situation, Tom, and you're looking at four different plausible directions. I'm still puzzling over your observation about everybody accepting the framing from Harden on uncomfortable combined with 
he actually did make things uncomfortable. Credit to James Harden. Maybe not the most effort in playoff series, if I dare say so, but he said it. He said he was going to make things uncomfortable by God, by going to China and calling out Daryl Morey to what I presume was a very confused audience. I mean, I, I can't imagine what's going through these people's minds when they see the great James Harden and he's ranting and raving about how Daryl Morey is a liar. Um, but hey, he he did it. I suppose that's a form of leverage. I don't get it. I don't get how he's handling the situation. Um, this is an example, by the way, Tom, of how things have swung the other way so much and maybe overcorrected from the LeBron 2010 days. Some people get annoyed when I say that. Some people go, oh, you know, why are you pining for the the reporters and TV pundits being assholes to these players? But somebody's got to say it. James Harden's earned over $300 million. What the hell is he whining about? <laughs> Do your job. What are you talking oh, about? Wow. Do your job. <laughs> what are you talking about? Stu Gatz. Stu Gatz is in the chat. <laughs> you've earned over $300 million. The only real blight on the resume is that you're, you're maybe not so invested in the team, maybe invested in yourself and your stats. Just like, what is the, I mean, how much marginally are you going to get from whatever you're doing in this scenario? And I'm inclined to believe, as you pointed out, with your very colorful, beautiful charts about uh, the age curve and his decline similar to the aforementioned Dwayne Wade and, and Russell Westbrook. It's just, I, I here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying, what I'm giving voice to, look, I don't care how James Harden handles the rest of his career. It, it's not something that really offends me all that much, but it's weird to see a bunch of reporters kind of mirroring the speech, saying uncomfortable, and nobody is just taking the obvious, just taking the obvious how most people react to this and going, what the hell is this guy doing? He's acting like a jackass enough already. Maybe Daryl Morey. I think there is a critique of Daryl Morey that could be made and Kevin McHale made it on radio. He said that Daryl indulged him, basically. It doesn't have to be about defending Daryl, who we have some connection to and we could be accused of it. But just the other side of it is just so obvious yeah. that this is a terrible way to handle your affairs. Well, I'll ask you this. As someone who covers agents and power brokers in the NBA, as well as anybody, do you think James Harden made a mistake by basically not having a super agent for the oh, last yeah. five, six <laughs> years? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I would... Well. I mean, maybe you would know better is maybe you would tell me that he has gotten what he wanted. And, you know, I mentioned the over $300 million earned. Uh, so perhaps there's an argument to be made that he extracted as much value and as much leverage as could be had, but he doesn't appear to be happy. Um, it doesn't appear to have helped his status. So I would probably lean on maybe you'd want to be more with, uh, you know, regular agency. James Harden, as I was like going through the numbers on him, I was imagining the induction ceremony at Hall of Fame and wondering how mm. that lands. Ooh. Like who is like who is caping or who's who's gonna like love this guy if Daryl Morey is not gonna be presenting him in that award or like being in his corner? I just don't know what his 
I hate this word legacy brand. No, don't don't resist it. No, legacy. It's a thing. How we remember guys is a thing. Uh, we were just talking about Dwayne Wade's legacy. I think it's adversely impacted by the stat you mentioned where he got the most free throws of anybody in the finals. It almost backfired on him and it made people feel like he was a fraud and resent him and it impacted his legacy. It's, it's, it's interesting. And I think that's a great question. Who's going to be there? Who's going to talk glowingly? It ain't going to be Kevin McHale. Uh, it's not, it's not, right now it's not going to be Daryl Morey. Maybe, maybe Daryl like takes the high road and is just like, Hey, I don't have any other option. Like, James, I'm sorry you think I'm a liar, but we need you. And uh, yeah. so let's just bury the hatchet and move on. And I think um, what's interesting to me, too, is that the, his peers, his, his the players, I don't think respect him nearly as much as he thinks. Like the idea of James Harden blowing up three different teams, whether it's Houston, Brooklyn, and now Philadelphia, um, I think it's instructive that the players voted him fifth in the mm. all-star ballot last year and fans gave him half as many votes as Donovan Mitchell in the all-star last year and all NBA. This dude averaged 21 points and led the NBA in assists and no one cared. The, mm. the, he didn't get any first team all NBA votes, no second team all NBA votes and barely a third team all NBA vote. He didn't get, third team all NBA. He led the league in uh, assists. Um, and it just kind of was hollow. It was received as hollow. That is empty calories. And uh, he has a certain brand of basketball that I think is unappealing to some viewers. Um, and I don't think he has the respect of his peers as much as he thinks fans and media. And so while he's undoubtedly a hall of famer, uh, an yeah. MVP and three-time scoring leader and all NBA for several years. It seems like he's going by the way of Dwight Howard, where people yeah. are probably going to forget how good he was because of how people just didn't take him seriously at the end. Yeah. I mean, he's a much better player than Tony Parker was, frankly, but Tony Parker is going to get good hall of fame vibes, regardless of whatever rumors happened uh, with San Antonio, uh, that notwithstanding, you're going to get you're going to get the San Antonio mafia there you're going to get people saying good things this hall of fame ceremony had guys that people say unreservedly good things about dirk for instance the aforementioned wade getting a warm a warm welcome it is difficult to envision what a james harden hall of fame ceremony looks like even if there's really no grounds for keeping him out of it based on accomplishment. The man is a basketball genius. Quinn yep. Snyder has, maybe it'll be Quinn Snyder. Quinn Snyder has a reverence for James Harden that I think might be considered uncommon just because he's had to scheme against him. And he, he felt as though James always figured out whatever the trick was. I mean, the guy, the guy is a savant, but it, it would appear that he's also a man without a country. Um, and, that's a choice. It's interesting that somebody would choose it. And it seems to be more common. It doesn't seem like James Harden has gone in the opposite direction of a trend. It seems like he's almost the uh, most extreme example of the trend. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with, I don't want to give too much credit to Daryl Morey, but he was the manifestation. James Harden was the manifestation of Morey's 
ideal basketball player gets to the free throw line, perhaps in fraudulent tax evasion ways um, that he's able to get easy points at the free throw line in ways that other players were not able to uh, figure out the tax code. Um, he was able to shoot step back three pointers and draw fouls on threes that it felt like a scam, but he was able to get 45 points a game. And at one point at the peak of it, Daryl Morey went on ESPN and said, he might be the greatest offensive player ever, ever, ever. And that was hyperbole. That was obviously hot takey, uh, in the way that you have to anchor things or dial it up like three more levels just so that people hear you. Um, but that was his guy. That was James Harden's guy. And now they're at war. Um, it raises a lot of questions about like, what do you need to get what you want in the NBA? And what James mm. Harden wants in the NBA is not very clear. Does he want to be the number one guy? Cause he joined up with Brooklyn when he was the number one guy in Houston and was not happy about that. Then he wanted out in Brooklyn so that he wanted to win and maybe be with Daryl Morey again and reunite with his guy. And now he's calling him a liar and doesn't want any part of him. And so the question is, what does James Harden want? I don't know <laughs> the answer to that right now. It's the Clippers, but man, um, him playing next to Russ and Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, he is not going to get the ball nearly as much as he thinks he is. So who knows if they can even get him on the team, but that's where it stands now with, uh, with James Harden and Daryl Morey, who I think a lot of people think is like the bromance of the NBA and that's over. And I think that's significant. Yeah. Is he's looking, James Harden is a little like the uh, scorpion and the frog parable, the scorpion. Uh, I'm not sure why you'd want to bring him on considering the recent track record. Let us round this out with one of our favorite topics on this podcast, but from a perspective that I usually don't discuss it from. Uh, the sports gambling, Tom, uh, you have more data than I have on this. You've done more work than I've done on this. And like I said, I see it mostly through the prism of how the media companies operate. Are they serving fan interests? Are they influencing, influencing society in a way that could be negative? This is what I focused on. But you're, I think, a little bit more wary of what what might happen to the actual sport. And you might see this as a threat to the actual integrity of the game, which that's a position people are glancing at, but not nearly taken up. So I'm wondering why. Well, because every night, one of the biggest talking points of the NBA, if you go on social media, is the NBA's rigged. Hmm. Pablo Torre wrote, one of the best ESPN, the magazine pieces about how conspiracy always seems to be following the NBA. And why is that? Why do fans always complain that they think the NBA is rigged? And I've just looked at those theories and decided to investigate them and try to get to the bottom of them, whether they have any carry any weight or not. And a lot of them don't carry any weight, but this is the same league that missed Tim Donaghy, that missed mm. the Tim Donaghy scandal for four years. It wasn't them who uncovered it. It was the FBI. And then David Stern did a miraculous thing, just kind of swept it under the rug and called him an isolated rogue uh, criminal and moved mm. on. 
But there are other parts of the NBA refereeing department that I've been fascinated on is who gets the big games, who gets promotions, who gets demotions. Why do they have more job security than Supreme Court justices? Um, Mm. You know, one NBA coach was like, when was the last time that an NBA referee was fired? And the Mm. reason why the coach was saying this is because coaches are fired all the time for their performance. Uh, whether you're Mike Budenholzer and you win an NBA championship and two years later you're canned or you win a coach in the year award and then you're canned the next year, that doesn't happen with NBA referees. And so I started getting into this space and trying to understand like the conflicts of interest of, of referees. And uh, there's a story in there about David Fisdale who went on the rant about officials in the playoff game where Kawhi Leonard had more free throw attempts than the entire Memphis Grizzlies team. And it was the game of his life, career high, 39 points. And Kevin Harlan on the call was saying he's never seen a guy get so many free throws. And it might be an NBA Mm. record, 19 free Mm. throws. And David Fisdale, the opposing coach, was like, something's up. And Mm. blasted the officials and said it was because of pop. Mm. And he was calling some sort of seniority bias of they were in the tank for pop. And I found... At The Finder, which you can subscribe to right now at thefinder.substack.com, that the NBA for that game, the Take That for Data game, which David Fizdo became a household name in NBA circles, not really a household name in, in general, for blasting the officials and then reeling off all these statistics and then saying, take that for data and slamming the table and walking off the press conference. In that game, the NBA put Two NBA, two officials who went to San Diego State, the same college, the same alma mater as Kawhi Leonard. And Kawhi Leonard just so happened to have the greatest game of his life and had more free throws than the entire Memphis Grizzlies team. And Mm. whether or not they were subconsciously or consciously rigging it for Kawhi Leonard, that's beside the point. And I'll probably do a full deep dive on this later at, at the Finder. But the fact that they didn't even notice this or that they didn't seem mm-hmm. to care that there would be a conflict of interest. And in a gambling era where they're getting American Gaming Association estimated that the NBA is getting $600 million a year from uh, gambling sponsorships and partnerships. Um, that's important to the trust with the fan and the covenant with the fan that David Stern talked about after Tim wait. Donaghy is like they have to repair the covenant of the fan after Tim Donaghy and the trust that the wait. fan is watching a game just that is on the up and up for those who don't follow the NBA and college obsessively. What Tom was referring to is that Kawhi Leonard was a star at San Diego state university and the two referees at San Diego state, unless that's not what Tom meant. he just meant that they're <laughs> SDSU grads. So they must be drunk, which is yeah. also plausible <laughs> as an explanation for how things got screwed up. But anyway, well, yes. And if you go to the San Diego State games now, uh, there's only one jersey hanging in the rafters and it's Kawhi Leonard's. Just so you know mm. how big of a deal Kawhi Leonard is in, at San Diego State. He's the only jersey up there. Not Michael Cage. Mm. Good have pull. you? But, not uh, Tony Gwynn? Not Tony <laughs> Gwynn. Although another story I'm working on um, with Joe Posnanski, my guy here in Charlotte, um, Tony Gwynn was a really good basketball player in college. Yeah. I don't know if you knew this. That's why I said Maybe it. as a San Diego guy, you knew this. Okay, fine. 
Uh, but the point is, the point is there's all these weird things happening with, uh, with NBA officials. And I just, um, hearing it from coaches and players all these years and executives and owners crying foul about the NBA officiating program. Um, I just think journalistically it's probably worth actually getting to the bottom of a lot of these things and seeing if there's anything there, there. Hmm. I'm looking up Tony Gwynn. You're completely correct on the what needs to happen and everything else. But I've also been distracted <laughs> because I'm looking up Tony Gwynn's basketball stats. Um, I suspect we would crush him. We would we would say that he's one of these point guards that passes the ball uh, a lot, but maybe should score a little more. But in his best season as a junior, 11 points a game, 8.2 assists. That's pretty good, Tom. That is pretty good. 1.7 steals. Tony Gwynn. RIP was uh, locking people up as a 5'11 point guard at SDSU. Um, Very Chris Paul-like. Like, he's a great passer, yeah. but probably should look for his own shot anymore. Steve Nash-like in that he probably mm. should have been shooting more. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, we've talked, I think, on this pod about, you know, NBA, um, the NBA puts their best referees on the marquee teams. And then the yeah. San Antonio and Orlando's of the world get like the rookie refs more often than the Lakers do. That's a very real thing. And those biases of like fans think, Oh, LeBron James gets the best officials or that the NBA puts the best officials for LeBron and takes care of LeBron. That is true. Maybe not for the same reason that fans think, but the NBA does put its best officials on LeBron's games because those are the games that have the most eyeballs. And the most eyeballs, if something goes wrong in a game, they want their guys, their best guys on that game in case things go haywire and mm. they need to clean something up. They want to make sure that the best officials are on the games that have the most eyeballs. And so these sort of findings, I'll call them, I didn't know about until I started investigating or jumping into the NBA referee operations. And I think it's fascinating. It's because it brings in all sorts of questions about policy of like fairness. Like, do you think every NBA team should have the same quality of referees? Mm. I'm like, a little bit like the heat index. Right? This is why I wanted the heat index. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the teams that matter more should have better quality officials. I know that makes me sound like an elitist, but just as I thought the Heat should have more journalists, maybe the games prime time, you know, maybe that's when you put your best foot forward. Uh, as you have said, Tom, in writing about this, there is an aspect of this where uh, perception perception is meaningful. And Bomani said that too, is like the perception of conflict of interest is just as meaningful, if not more meaningful than the actual conflict of interest itself. Because when you have ESPN potentially partnering with college football or NFL um, in equity, then it becomes the fans are probably going to look at your coverage a little bit differently and being like, I can't trust ESPN to tell me what really happened in that game because they are a PR arm of, well, of the, the, the teams or the league. Right. It, it, it hits a little bit differently when you know that they're actually in that kind of partnership. Yeah, I would agree with that. And at the same time, I do think that the Detroit Pistons should be forced to have high school referees uh, because the NBA, if it's not going to do relegation, it needs to do something to signal that it's time to shape up and, and improve. 
Tom, this has been fantastic. I have a feeling of what you're going to plug, uh, but I will I will leave it up to you. What should we be checking out of yours, sir? Um, go check out Basketball Illuminati on Metal Arc Media. Every week we do a podcast talking about the NBA as if it was controlled by about seven people. Shout out to Colin Cowherd who said that on air. Um, mm. I do that on a weekly basis uh, with Amin and Maze, but also check out if you want my writing because I haven't been in the writing game for a couple years now and I'm back up um, writing at Substack, TomTheFinder.com or TheFinder.Substack.com. Um, that's where all my writing is going to be. And I think a lot of the stuff that we talk about here, whether it's gambling or officials or James Harden's theatrics into a game to try to rig it for, uh, to get to the free throw line, all that stuff planning on covering. Um, and it's good to be writing again and it's good to be talking to you again. And it feels like, um, a full circle moment where we were at ESPN not really knowing what we were doing 10 years ago. And now we're back (laughs) full circle and writing about the NBA and ESPN and all that stuff um, because we lived it. And it was a crazy time. It was a crazy time covering those Miami heat and golden state warriors teams. And I hope, uh, I hope over the next few weeks um, I'll be writing some pieces that kind of look back on those years. And, you know, I, I just, I just think there's so much in the NBA and and in sports that isn't getting talked about or isn't getting written about. And I feel like people like you and I are going out there and I don't know, getting, getting that stuff on paper because it just seems like, why isn't anyone else writing this stuff? (laughs) You know, like you look around you're like, why isn't anyone putting their name on the James Harden story? Like, why is that? (laughs) Why? You know, this is so weird. I'm reminded to bring it all full circle. My first all-star weekend, having dinner at our friend Kevin Arnovitz's house. And I started saying, why is nobody asking David Stern blank? And Kevin said to me, you have a credential. You can ask him. And it was, oh, okay. (laughs) I guess, I guess somebody, somebody's got to do it. It might as well be us, Tom. This has been fantastic. I look forward to seeing what you put out there for us. Thanks for finding it interesting. And thanks for uh, plugging the finder for me. I appreciate that, man. See ya.